This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. It's unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. And we're back. Welcome to season four of the Internal Comms podcast. My name is Katie McCauley, and for 30 years, I've been fascinated by the way we communicate with each other at work. It's been my privilege to work with organisations large and small over those years, and everything that I've seen has taught me one thing. Exceptional organisational performance is rooted in exceptional employee communication. So this is a podcast to inform, inspire and energise the crafters, the deliverers, the champions of internal communications. Yes, that's you, my lovely listeners. And as a good communicator, I ask my audience, who would you like to hear from in this season? And your feedback was clear and consistent. We want a greater diversity of voices and I couldn't agree more. There is a new sense of urgency about the need for true diversity and inclusion inside our organisations. And I wanted to dive into this subject with an expert. Tasneem Chopra is a leading cross-cultural consultant with over two decades of experience in her field. Now, I first heard Tasneem speak at this year's IABC Virtual World Conference and I knew minutes, within minutes of hearing her presentation, I just had to invite her onto the show. 
Kazneem was recently appointed a anti-racism champion by the Australian Human Rights Commission. She is a keynote speaker, TV broadcaster, author, and prominent activist with a genuine passion for addressing social injustice. Now, I learned a lot in this conversation. In fact, at one point, I think you can actually hear my brain connecting the dots as we speak. Tasneem is incredibly insightful, articulate, witty, and warm. So without further ado, listeners, I bring you Tasneem Chopra. So Tasneem, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on and also to be kicking off season four of the show. No pressure at all for the opening act. <laughs> now, first of all, let's let's dig into your, your role and your work. You describe yourself as a cross-cultural consultant. And I've also heard, actually, you describe yourself as a professional disruptor. Now, I'd love to sort of unpack that title a little. So can you just tell us about your work and also a little bit maybe about the power of disruption? So my work essentially, I mean, cross-cultural consultant, the number one question is, what is that? And it is essentially working in the field of overlapping different cultural aspects or perspectives from one community to another. So typically, you know, I guess in a Western context, it would be understanding minority communities that you're working with or that you have working for you in order to leverage the optimum output um, and gains. Understanding that cultural context so that you can do better, that you can be more sensitive, but also creating a, a workplace environment that's conducive to, to your diverse staff feeling more valued and included. So getting to those different points um, is, is, I guess, is across both cultures, ergo across cultural consulting. And I say consulting because a lot of what I do is coming in as an external person, observing, commenting, and often developing a strategy, or sometimes just coming in and advising via a keynote or a workshop on what is the value add of cultural diversity to your workforce. I think it's when we talk about the diversity paradigm, you know, historically it sort of started with gender but it kind of stuck with gender for about 30, 40 years, and which is important, obviously, but there are other dimensions. And we have, we have obviously moved on to sexuality with the gender issue, LGBTQI um, and disability, which is also extremely important. But I think something like cultural diversity impacts all three of those. Yes. You know, it impacts gender, it impacts sexuality, it impacts your physical abilities as well. So when that, I feel, is not embedded in the way that an organisation recruits engages, advertises, does its marketing, that's a massive oversight. And we know that because, you know, you'll often have the cohort or the demographic of your customer base will look a certain way. And, and instead of looking how it should look, which is like the society in which you live, it'll be perhaps very monocultural through a very myopic lens because that's the way it's always been done. So it's about really mixing it up. We live in a globalised world. We know that our communities are diverse. We know that in 2020, one in two or one in three of us are either in a Western context, either born overseas or have a parent born overseas. So that multicultural presence is undeniably a part of the fabric or the DNA of how societies operate. But you don't often see the response to that cultural diversity embedded in the way you run. And that's a missed opportunity. 
Mm, There's so much here that I want to dig into. Let's chat a little bit about then that disruptive aspect of it. I'm guessing you are standing in a room and you're in some ways, and, and, and tell me I'm wrong here, but part of your role may be to hold a mirror up to the organization to say, this is the way you look, but should you look like this really? And kind of almost calling it out, saying things that potentially are going through the minds of people in the room, but for whatever reason, they don't feel able to say out loud. Would that, am I guessing right there? You got the cigar for that one. (laughs) It it is that, it's making people uncomfortable, sitting with that discomfort. I think that's really important. I don't think, I think especially post the George Floyd protests, that we've seen unfold in the US. We're past the point of saying, well, let's do implicit bias training. We're past the delicacies of that conversation. And it really is going to be about the hard issues and saying it's not enough to be against racism. It's important to be anti-racist. And that means sitting with your comfort, sitting with your privilege and inverting it, saying, well, if you hold on to that, what's the cost? What, what does that mean for everybody else? What does that mean for the, the way that you recruit, the way that you hire? And questioning the principles and the practices that you're so ingrained and so used to doing. I think one of those really simple mantras that I would start off with is if you don't look like the community that you serve, ask yourself why. And what happens if you don't change the metrics to get to that point? You know, and you, and you, and you can't be what you can't see. So if, if young people entering an organisation don't see themselves um, represented in leadership or middle management, for example, it doesn't even become aspirational. Mm. It just becomes, well, what's the point? Why bother? Mm. And, and we know that, I mean, I'm sure in the UK, similar to Australia, um, so much of senior and middle management in corporate, in, in business, um, even in, in government is dominated by, you know, that sort of pale, male and stale kind of archetype. And it's like, well, how do, you, how do we begin to change that? And having that conversation, and I, because I'm a consultant and I do often come into a room full of middle-aged suited white men um, at a dinner function or at an AGM or a corporate end-of-year party, um, I do get in there and say my piece, which can make them feel very uncomfortable and disrupt, I guess, the status quo and then leave. Mm. I sort of come in, drop it and go and I leave them to work it out. And I've lost count, Katie, the number of times I've been approached by HR of these organisations, often large corporate ones, to say they almost whisper on the phone, (laughs) we need you to come in and shake it up because it needs to be shaken up. And I'm like, well, that should be my tagline perhaps, you know, shaking it up. And that's, so that's what I do. And I have the luxury of being able to come in and say it and drop the bomb and say, you need to diversify because this room does not reflect the world that you live in. It certainly doesn't reflect your customer base. And it's certainly not aspirational for your, for your entry staff and your lower, your, your lower level staff. They, you need to move up. You need to look like 2020. And there's a lot of shuffling and discomfort. And it's like, you know, because in order for that to happen, someone, somebody has to make way. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a popular conversation, but it's a necessary conversation. Um, and if it makes people uncomfortable, that's good because that means they know they need to change. That discomfort, as you say, is a sign of something, isn't it? So I'm interested in your journey to this point. And I've heard you call yourself, I think it was the, a quota queen. <laughs> 
um, which raises the whole subject of, of labels, which I think we need to we do need to touch on. But yes, why why a quota queen? Can you explain that one? Look, I think at the beginning of my career, and we're harking back now, say 30, 25, 30 years, when I was I have a background in psychology and community development. So by definition, I was working with often multicultural communities and diverse groups. And what that gave me then was, I guess, buy-in and collateral with that cohort of the society and the community that was very, that was, was very diverse, very rich, and represented often the consumers of organisations, of departments of government. And then I sort of shifted from working at a grassroots level to maybe middle management level in different capacities. And then somewhere down the line, I also started doing my own consultancy. And that consultancy was a formalisation of the informal requests that I often get to understanding diversity. Or in in my case, it was really post 9-11. So 9-11 was the catalyst for me doing a lot more work in community engagement. And um, that work was very informal. I was doing it on the side, speaking at everything from a neighbourhood house or community centre to a church group, to a school. Then it became a perhaps a government department. Um, And then it it sort of got bigger and bigger. And the requests were varied. It started off from Islamophobia or understanding the Muslim community, understanding Islam in Australia. And then I sort of noticed these were not um, experiences that were, in many cases, the racism and the, ex- the, the ex- ostracization of these communities was also experienced by other minorities. So I sort of branched out to address more diverse communities and their multicultural alienation. Mm. And so it became a thing. And um, because it was, it was a cultural lens that I was applying, I guess myself, I, I come from a very, I guess, a hybrid background. I was born in Kenya, about fifth generation East African born of Indian origin, but raised in a country town in Victoria in Australia. So I've had all these kind of parallel experiences, which inform my insight and inform my outlook of what it means to be different, what it means to hold on to a cultural identity in a country that often demonises you. Um, for difference and, and how, to, how to subvert that into a positive. And so I would often be carrying, you know, depending what room I walked into, I'd be a consultant um, or in some other forms I'd be a disruptor, um, depending on how the audience was reading me and what my intention was. And so you never really, you never really knew people's reactions until you read the room and really got in there and, and saw how people responded. And I, I used to argue that, you know, I used, would participate on a lot of different forums or get called often to represent a community issue or a perspective if they were d- deciding an event or a responding to a media issue and I'd be called in to give that response. And I was wondering why I was being called in and I realised, well, I was female, I was you know, getting older, I was a Muslim background, I was coloured, I had a thing on my head. Um, so I ticked a lot of boxes and, you know, hence the quota queen. I, I fulfilled that diversity quota. And I do joke about it in retrospect um, because I understand my presence and my input was necessary often to, to give more breath to a conversation, a discussion. But I, I think there's a serious issue in conversation to be had on how we tokenise difference as well. And I've lost count, again, of the number of incredibly accomplished young diverse and older diverse people that I've met in this sector who get co-opted onto an advisory committee or a steering committee or a board because they tick a box. But when it comes to actual meaningful participation, they're often stifled. I've had one woman actually say to me that she'd been on a particular board, I'm not sure, I think it was local county, trying to develop some policy on increasing community participation. And she made some suggestions that she thought were really, really helpful in reaching out or engaging with newly arrived or emerging uh, refugee communities. 
and she noticed none of her suggestions were being put, put up. Everything was staying the same. So she did actually question one of her colleagues halfway through the year and said, look, I'm, I'm just wondering why I'm here because you're not actually taking on board any of my suggestions. And she was told point blank, look, you're, we needed you here as a requirement in order to fulfil our um, statutory obligations to have a diverse community representative, but I can assure you we're not taking any of your decisions on board because we've made up our mind. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't even subtle. And I, and I wonder if that's because she, you know, she had a migrant um, kind of appearance so they felt they could say this to her and she wouldn't really get how incredibly condescending it was. But she certainly, she, she, she wasn't tone deaf and she picked it up straight away. And obviously she told others and uh, here I am now telling you um, and it's going out to the other. So this happens, that kind of um, abuse and misuse of minorities in order to tick a particular box and to you know, achieve a particular objective, that kind of exploitation, exploitative behaviour is really problematic. And, yeah, I mean, that's probably another podcast into itself of, you know, how minorities do get exploited and how they fight, fight back and push back and why they need to. There's so many different ways we could go with this conversation at this point, but I'm just curious on something you said earlier around diversity in its all its forms. So whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's culture, whether it's race, um, whether it's age, what do you think we might have learned from those previous struggles and they're still going on so I don't want to pretend that those struggles are over and there's equity across all those groups because there isn't what do you think we what's worked and what hasn't worked do you think from those previous struggles what lessons can we draw I think we've learned the long lesson or after after a long time I think the lesson we've learned is that in order to best understand the attributes and experiences of minority community you need to hear from them um, they need to lead their committees. They need to lead the action and the, I guess, strategic orientation of how an organisation goes regarding that issue. And I say this because, I mean, uh, historically the feminist movement has, has been banging its head against the wall because decisions made for women, for women were collectively made by a group of men. And to this day you can watch a, a panel discussion on or a current affairs program discussing migrant communities and the problem with the Africans or the problem with the Muslims and there were neither an African or a Muslim on a panel. So it's startlingly obvious and, and we know how ridiculous it would seem to the establishment of the system if a bunch of women decided to discuss the future of men. But, and, and, and when you say that, they say that's extraordinarily ridiculous. I was like, well, this is our reality. You know, we, we become the subject matter but we're no longer experts because you know, you, you somehow believe that because we've been othered, we don't have A, the capacity or the agency or the knowledge to represent ourselves and our issues. And the reality is these communities, these diverse communities in the UK, in the US and Australia, have been there for two, three, four generations. They are British, they are American, they are Australian, um, but somehow they're continuously othered uh, to the point where they become a problem to be discussed by experts in the field. And that kind of patronising and that looking down and dumbing down and muting I think is a lesson that we've learned that women didn't put up with. And so we still have ridiculous gender pay gap. And we still have, you know, you know, the, the equity and the factors between what women and men receive and endure in countries like the US and UK and Australia are pretty appalling. I mean, Europe seems to be doing a much better job. But it's a sign because women have been able to take the helm and say, well, this is, this is what we demand because this is what we're worth. That was an interesting aspect of Black Lives Matter, I think, in the sense that there were I mean, I was one of those people that was like, we've got to put out a statement. We've got to say something supportive. We've got to say what we're doing. And um, 
my team were like, no, no, we should sit back and listen. And I was like, okay. And actually by doing that, by listening to the rich and varied voices that came forward there, I learned a lot. I mean, for example, microaggression. I'd never even heard that phrase properly before and I didn't really know what it meant. But all of a sudden I was learning about these these small behaviors of aggression that happen almost daily, well, definitely daily in the workplace that really had passed me by, if I'm being really honest. So I love the idea of getting the right voices to speak up. But I guess for that, you need a degree of psychological safety in the workplace, don't you? You need cultural safety. Yeah. Cultural safety. Cultural safety. Yeah. And how do we get there? I mean, that's such a a massive topic, isn't it? I think by what you just said, by anti-racism education. And I think we've, we need to, in order to actually shift the way that organisations respond to diversity, because while for the last 10 or 15 years we've, you know, the, 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 I guess the term or the, the logic has been, you know, implicit bias training, unconscious bias training, and if we do that in the workplace, we'll no longer hold, hold you know, these, we won't be have racist metrics informing our recruitment practices, da, da, da. I think that was kind of a very veneer or a very superficial way of dealing at what is actually a mindset issue. So how do we get to cultural safety is we have to unpack and we have to A, accept and sit with our racism, accept that we are. I mean, we all, myself included, will hold inherent views about particular groups which are problematic. So sit with it, be uncomfortable with it, learn to unpack it and learn to correct it. And that won't happen overnight. That is going to take some time and that is going to take some listening as opposed to um, hashtags Mm. um, and and ribbon days and and food days. It's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to take some conscious learning. And, I mean, I actually had a request only recently from a government department who, again, in light of all the George Floyd protests globally, felt that uh, we should probably have uh, their, their view was we should probably do some implicit, implicit bias training for our workforce. And they were very politely told by a cohort of people of colour in, in the government department who'd formed their own little union organisation and said, we're past that. You need to actually tackle this issue for what it is, which is anti-racism education. And just using the R word is progress because... The, when you kind of, and I've had to even vet myself sometimes before I go into a session and, and just say to ask HR, can I use the R word? Can I say racism? Wow. Yeah, because some people just get, they will walk out of a room because they're too confronted by it. And you often hear the, I mean, the response to that is people who, you know, people who are most uncomfortable with addressing racism are racists. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really simply because they just don't want to have to face that. It's like, well, why are you saying that? That's racist. It's like, well, actually, no, I'm actually talking about it because it's a, it's a lived reality for so many people because we never think about things like microaggressions or what it means to have white privilege, what it even means to have privilege. We don't talk about colorism or sex. You know, there, there are so many isms that we need to tackle. But unless you lay them out there and listen to the people who are experiencing it, you're not going to shift it. So that brings me on to quite quite a neat question in a way, because I'm guessing quite a lot of listeners are going to be responsible for creating content inside their organisations. How do you find the right voices? So encourage people to step forward to share their story, do it in an authentic way, but also, I guess, avoid tokenism. 
because that's the danger with this as well, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm going to pick someone from this group, then I'm going to pick someone from that group. Before you know it, have you fallen into that tokenistic trap, I guess? It's a way of doing that in a more authentic and meaningful way. Look, I would say to have your diversity committees and diversity and inclusion steering committees who are tackling this issue of cultural diversity, have that led by a person of colour to start with because there's nothing more confronting than having to maybe um, reveal experience of discrimination or racism that's internally experienced to a colleague who's not diverse, who you feel might say, well, are you sure it really happened? You know, maybe you just imagine that. Oh, I don't think that's what they meant. You know, um, and that kind of second-guessing is sometimes second nature, but it really does completely undermine the experience of what they're trying to tell you. And, and we know that from the experience of women and sexual assault and how we, we, we can't do that and we shouldn't do that and we can't minimise it and dumb it down because it doesn't fit our narrative. Of, oh, but he's a really great guy. So yeah, we understand it in that metric. It applies in this one too. So have a person of colour, you know, responsible for maybe running that particular project and even if it means survey monkeys, which are anonymous, where you can disseminate it to staff that don't have to reveal the name if they don't want to, make it, but you make it an option. But you you get that data and you get that information and it, it, it can be so empowering. I mean, I'm not sure in the UK, but in Australia we have these People Matters surveys, which are an HR staple within an organisation where you record everything from date of birth and languages spoken, ethnicity, race, religion, whatever. And, we're, you know, in some organisations they're making an addendum to include experiences of harassment um, racism or bullying that you've, you know, that you've endured. Um, and you can actually, you can anonymously do that. Mm. And that, that becomes your database. And we've not asked, we don't know what people's experiences are because we've not asked. And we've not asked because privacy. But for me, it's not privacy. For me, it's discomfort. We want to know if people have experienced sexual harassment. We want to so that we can fix it. We want to know if people experienced bullying. We want to know if they've experienced racism. Um, because unless we know, how do we respond? And so if I'm a great believer in getting those surveys, they can be a pain in the neck. But I think it's, it's a responsibility of comms and marketing and organisations to really sell the value of completing these surveys. Because unless there's a data collection, and we know data is where it's at, unless you can actually, you know, run the numbers by executive and say, we do have a cultural problem in this organisation and it's, you know, it's, it's either race-based or it's, a, it's patriarchy or it's misogyny or whatever it is, it's a bullying culture, and you need to be able to demonstrate that because that's when the money comes in, that's when the position comes in, that's when the policies change. So making people feel safe and that cultural safety is what we talk about, creating an environment where they feel revelations won't cost them their job, is really important to do that. And an anonymous survey is one way of doing it, but definitely having it led by someone who is from that community gives it authenticity. It makes it credible. And I have to say in this particular field of diversity and inclusion, it still surprises me that when I attend some events and conferences or forums, 90% of the DNI consultants are, you know, Anglo-Saxon individuals, you know, men or women, but... It, to me, it's like, hmm, and they're discussing diversity and they're discussing inclusion and they're talking about cultural diversity and great strategies. And I, and I have no doubt that some of those strategies are, are really worthy and important, but it's, it, it really does, to me, come back down to amend the best arbiters of discussing women's issues. 
Mm. You're making me think now because you're, you're making me think of the power of, of something like an editorial panel when you're thinking about the content that you disseminate across your channels internally and making sure that panel is, again, representative of the audience that it serves, but also representative of the issues that you want to discuss. And you can't necessarily know what, yeah, you can't know what you haven't lived yourself. So then you have to get into curious mode. And I was, I just want to pick up on something you said there about, oh, he didn't mean it. You know, he may have said those things, but he didn't mean it. Where do you stand on that? Because I've heard you mention that people have said about your head covering, oh, you don't have to do that here. Is your husband making you wear that? Which I can't imagine someone saying that. But then again, I think about it and I think, well, they are curious and they want to understand, but they've got completely the wrong end of the stick. How do you respond to those kinds of comments and questions? Because they're not necessarily coming from a horrid place. That person just generally wants to understand, but they've come about it in a really, as we would say in the UK, cat-handed way. I don't know if that means anything. <laughs> but, yeah, look, I think my threshold and tolerance for those curious questions this has diminished significantly with age I just have a shorter fuse now it's like really and and the reason I say that is because I mean if the person is um it depends on the context as well I mean if we're in a if we're in a work environment and I'm there completing a role or a job or a project and I'm working alongside a co-worker I mean if I have something on my head or not has got nothing to do with the task at hand I mean you can understand what I'm saying presumably we're speaking the same language um then your inquiry about me, while it might be curious, the fact that you're going to then ask me where I'm from or where I am is immediately based on the assumption that I'm not from here. And I think when you have lived in, we lived in a country or even been born in a country, um, I've been in Australia for like for most of my life, by country when I was four. So I really have been here most of my life. This is, this is, this is where I'm from, you know, for better or worse. And then when people make the assumption, where are you from? immediately, immediately follows that you're not from here. You know? And so I tell them I'm from country Victoria and they go, no, no, but where are you from? from? And you think, well, okay, you know, you want to know why I'm brown basically. Um, and, that, and that's the bottom line. And that, that need to know is grounded in a sense that you have to belong to a box that I've put you in because I can't fathom that you're from here. Um, having said that, I found in the U.S., and maybe in the UK to some extent, you know, I don't know about the UK as much, but certainly in the US, a person of Asian background or Middle Eastern background, whether they're from, you know, Detroit or New York or LA, you know, you'd ask them, but, but no one asks them where they're from because they're American. Mm, mm. And then it would be, oh, yeah, but you're, you know, you're, you're ethnically Bangladeshi or you're ethnically, you know, Eritrean or Turkish. Or, okay, I get it, but you're American. But in Australia, and I don't know about the UK as much, it's like, well, no, to the to the extent that even second and third generation Australians of ethnic backgrounds identify as well, I'm Italian or I'm Turkish or I'm Arab, and my kids will say I'm Indian. My kids, they've never been to India. They don't even speak the language, but they tell their friends, "Oh yeah, we're Indian." I'm like, how 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 are you Indian? Like, tell say one thing to me in Hindi or anything. Really, give me something, um, and and that's part of I think the psychology of maybe where multiculturalism is at. But it's also, it goes to this idea of belonging and who gets to decide. And as soon as someone asks you where you're from, the assumption is you're not from here and so that you can't be from here. 
And so that's when I get a bit defensive and think, well, why are you asking me that? And so I've learned to not ask that. If, I mean, normally if I see a person of colour, you know, in, in an event or in a room at all at these, you know, incredibly large white functions, but you see that one person of colour and you just dart for them, I would be asking, hey, where are you from? But now I don't like it. It's just we give each other the nod, like we're here and we're together and this is okay and we've got this. So I stopped asking others that. And as people ask me that question now, I mean, I can I laugh it off or I give them, you know, very sarcastic, sarcastic quick back. But often I'll ask them, is there a point to you asking this? Is there is there a reason? And it's, yeah, because I don't fit the narrative of what an Australian woman looks like in their point of view. And I'm like, well, one in two of us are born overseas or have a parent born overseas, so why don't you tell me what Australia looks like? It doesn't. And I, I'll say this out to all your listeners Australia does not look like a set of neighbours mm. and it hasn't It hasn't for about 40 years. So this idea that we all look like that is, is just completely warped. It probably looks kind of more like Bradford. It really does. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's rich. It's diverse. We're from everywhere. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But second and third generation Australians of different, of different ethnic backgrounds are what populate this place. So that is who we are and that's what we need to embrace and be less reactive and responsive to where are you from because we're from here. It's interesting because, as you say, that immediately creates that feeling of other. Oh, you don't belong. You're, you're in some way special and different and let's dig into your special and differentness. Well, that is that. You don't belong, but I do. And I get to ask, well, I'm from here. I'm from here. Yes, exactly. And then you, you push them back. And two generations ago, they're from the UK. And it's like, well, I've been here for two generations. So I guess we're both migrants, right? Um, and I always go back to, you know, the only two Australians are the First Nations people in this country. They've been here for 60,000 years. So we're all migrants. And, um, yeah, a bit of a disruptive comment to make, but it's an important one. I read an interesting article in sort of researching and, and preparing for this conversation, which we've touched on, but I think it, it, it's worth bearing out. There is a massive difference between being diverse and being inclusive. And it's exactly what you're talking about. And I, I'm, I'm noticing also that with what you're saying, as well as being morally and ethically the right thing to do, reflecting the communities that you serve and your consumer base, your customer base, is also commercially so sensible as well. It is. And, you know, I've, I've had experiences where, from, depending on, again, on my audience, you know, if, if it's a more, um, I guess, if, if it's an NGO, for example, I can really speak to the moral imperative of being inclusive. But if I'm talking to a multinational, I talk to the fiscal imperative of being inclusive um, and how you're more likely to get better returns because people feel more comfortable, they relate better, they feel like, their brand is, your brand is something they can connect to. So they're happy to spend their money and spend their dollars because they feel this is our people, this is who we are. It's, it's viable business sense, absolutely. You talk about, we, we have a client in the UK, I probably shouldn't mention them, but that it's not an uncommon phrase. And I think it's fair to say they're not the most diverse organisation in the world and they're trying to acknowledge that and change. But they talk about the importance of bringing the whole self to work. And you talk about not feeling that you have to leave your labels or some of your labels at the door. I think I prefer that actually because visually I can I can imagine you know that that conjures up an actual picture of people saying there are some things I can't bring into this room. I, I just wonder if you could just explain 
how you've seen that in organizations and that the damage that it can cause, not just to that individual who feels they can't do that, but to the group dynamic as well. It's, it's a failure to optimize the resources that you have. So if you're sitting at a table with a collective of people from various cultural backgrounds or faith backgrounds or linguistic backgrounds, for example, they might all have a different life experience, um, whether it's generational or whether it's you know part of their cultural mindset and the way that they approach an issue or problem. Even from the way that they interact with each other, for example, that can be informed by cultural nuance. But if you're set on I don't know, arriving at a problem or a solution in a certain way with a certain method or we go around the room and ask everyone, but some people don't feel comfortable doing that because they're a bit, they're a bit more shy, they're a bit more reserved, um, they would prefer to think about it a little bit more or break into a group. But whatever that dynamic is, if you make this assumption that the only way to do it is a certain way without actually hearing and listening to, the, to each individual contributor on their terms, on their terms, not yours, you miss out. So this whole idea, I think, of being inclusive is as far as possible to meet people where they're at in terms of their cultural mindset. And for some, it might mean a different way of approaching an issue. Um, Southeast Asian women, for example, in some communities, they might prefer to receive the questions or contribute quite prolifically, um, depending on if they're newly arrived or how long they've been here, via a survey, by a written response, one-on-one with a female colleague. We don't know, right? That's just one example. Um, it could be a language issue. They may not fully grasp the whatever the, the, the syntax of the way in which you presented an issue, not because they lack ability to solve a problem, because but they lack understanding of the way that you've conveyed it because it's, the way you're conveying it is done in business speak because that's the way you've always done it, you know, for the last 50 years because that's how this organisation works, uh, except that you've hired people who've just come in this year who, who've not been there for 50 years. And so there, there is a difference. So this whole, uh, this whole expectation that people just have to catch up to where you're at as opposed to trying to, if you meet people where they're at, there is so much more potential to A, for you to learn, B, for them to feel included, and C, for an organisation to grow because suddenly you realise, oh, we could, actually, we could actually leverage the networks from this community now because we actually have people there. You, you, you get the cultural nuance, you get the understanding and by the same token, our clients will feel more compelled, more comforted, the fact that we have employees from their communities and will feel like, oh, you're a very inclusive, progressive organisation, you know, I'm happy we're doing business with you, we'll, we'll bring on another client, we'll tell our friends. So that all, there are dividends that you can pay forward that I think go far beyond you know, just having a group of people at a table who look the same, who think the same, who think the same, and, you know, who give you the same response. I mean, I think often, not conflict, but difference of opinion, sometimes conflict, at the board table can be a good thing because you challenge yourself, you test what is the comfort zone, and that's how you grow. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. My guys will know that I have this phrase when we're all agreeing with each other vehemently, and I say, oh, no. We're all in agreement. What have we missed? <laughs> yeah, it's always a bit worrying when everyone really, really agrees with each other. It's just like, mm. I can't stand it after the meeting's gone on for two hours. It's like, you know, just agree because you just want to go home. It's like, that's different to, I mean, you know, just fundamentally agreeing to anything because you, know, you want to get out of the room. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, that, and this is for women, right? I mean, we know this from, from, from gender dynamics that if, when you're the woman in the room, if you have any counter opinion, to what all the blokes are saying, what all the men folk are saying, um, you, you, you are very hard-pressed to keep quiet because, like, what, what do you know, sweetie? Or, um, 
really keep and just keep that opinion to yourself because we, we guys have got this, you know, and we've seen that and we've heard it and we've felt it. We've been that woman in the room who's sitting next to a bigger, louder, whiter man and you just think, well, I just, there's nothing that I can say to this table that's going to make them see my point of view, so I'll just shut up. And, you know, I mean, who wrote Leaning In? That whole idea that we just shrink ourselves as women in order to fit in because we don't want to rock the boat because we want income security and stability is actually part and parcel of what often diverse people are feeling at the table when they're the one brown person or the black person or the Asian person um, and they don't want to stick out or have a counter view. So the dynamics of feeling silenced and muted are the same, but I think we're not actually understanding what the impact of that is in an organisation's ability to develop itself because it's like we've got diversity, we've got, you know, 30, 40% women in our organisation, um, 2% cultural diversity, but 30% diversity. So we're, we're done. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very problematic. Mm. But as you say, you know, you've got that diversity, but on the outside, you've hired those people. But if you're not listening to them and if you're not allowing them to bring themselves to the table and there's. You just tick the optics box. Yes. You've done, yeah, you've, you've done the um, DNI tokenism, you know. Was it the high? Was it called the token hire? Right, you've done the token hire, um, and you've not shifted anything. And um, yeah, I, I've got to say this in um, in Australia, a independent, I guess, initiative um, on Instagram, which is a social media um, portal, started about six months ago as a platform for people of colour who work in multinational NGOs to basically. D- debrief in the most cathartic way about the experiences of racism and they're all anonymous contributions but the organizations are named Ah. you know and it has been such an eye-opener because a lot of these are large well-known NGOs um some of them are not NGOs some of the government departments but the experiences of frustration of being silenced of being the token other appointed to that role whilst middle and senior management continues to look the same hire the same and bring on board the same while, you know, younger recruits who have done the few years have done never get a chance to be promoted or taken up. And it's it was really startling because, I mean, these are organisations that I've, you know, I've either worked with or I've never worked for them but I've worked alongside with them and collaborated with them. And then you hear about these experiences of frustrations and, you know, some of these are women's organisations. Wow. Um, they're, they're keeping other women at arm's length because they're only allowing some to come on. And this is the battle of the sisterhood, right? You know, we're supposed to bring each other up and help each other up because, you know, fighting the patriarchy has been battled that we're all on the same page with, right? And yet when it comes down to it, we bring on women but not women of colour. And that kind of frustration has not gone unnoticed. And so this particular site has, has been really alarming. I'm not sure if there's an equivalent in the UK, but here in Australia it's made a lot of people understandably nervous because they wonder if they're going to be next to be named. So, um, and rightly so, it's, it's part of that, putting that discomfort out there now. It's gone from just being at an, at an event or a training session, it's now on a social media portal where you can actually, every, every week I wonder who's next, you know, who's next, who's going to be named and shamed. And, you know, and one person will, you know, relay their experience of lament and then in like 5, 10, 15 people will chime in and this happened to me and this happened to me. I never got a promotion. I never got realised. I brought up my experience of racism and was told I was told I was being disruptive. Um, I called out what I thought were really unethical principles and I was I was fired. 
you know, this kind of stuff that's going on. So yeah, there's no doubt, is it, that the walls of our organisations are becoming more and more transparent. You know, we talked, we've been talking since I think 2017 about glass box brands, but basically these are organisations you can see all the way to the back. Um, I had a colleague say the other day, all the way, all the way back to the toilets, you know, but you can actually see exactly what's happening inside them because people are, are sharing and calling it out and uh, being very open and honest with what's being said in the room. Um, so. I think that transparency, that capacity to be transparent is kind of why there is a seismic shift in holding to account business leaders and executives on issues of diversity and inclusion because they can't behind they can't hide behind a smoke stream of a you know 34th floor office suite and think that everything that happens there will stay up there you know literally if something is going to go you know pear shaped really badly you can't you can't guarantee that it won't hit social media within 24 hours or less anymore yes but i think what you're saying also is don't think you know the answer. Don't think you can solve it. And don't think you're the voice that everyone wants to listen to if you are part of that white, you know, patriarchy. Exactly, that white establishment. Because actually maybe the best thing you can do is step back and encourage others to step forward. I I think that's what I'm hearing you say here. I I think, I think, and, and, and on reflection, I think that's, you know, even if I reflect our own organisations is, is very small compared to the corporates that you work with. But, you know, whose voices are we hearing, I think, is the really is the really key, key thing here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, well, yeah. it, it's a, such a, a massive topic. I'm just wondering on a very, very individual basis, what we all do in our own lives. And this is going to change depending on our own and our own backgrounds and our confidence and, and where we come to and where we've come from to this issue, I guess. But what would you love to see people doing on a very personal and individual basis? I guess there's two things. And I think the first is the short term. And the, sh- the short term is, so with the LGBTQI movement, now it has become pretty standard in a lot of large organisations to fly the rainbow flag and to have a diversity officer who's responsible to ensure that people, you know, who identify in LGBTQI um, communities feel somewhere, there's somewhere they can go to make a complaint or, you know, talk about an issue or whatever. So that's embedded into the way organisation runs. I would love to see there to be somebody from, you know, as it BIPOC or BAME or called communities as we call them here, culturally and linguistically diverse. I would love there to be a designated officer in organisations to do it. But having I say that short term because in the long term I would really love to not have to um, have this as an allocated position to respond to a crisis. I would love for DNI strategies, recruitment to be embedded in the way an organisation runs. And um, someone very cleverly tweeted, I think I read it on LinkedIn, I forget who the, who the author was, but she was saying rather than retain a diversity and inclusion coordinator for your, for your corporate body or for your organisation, instead tie the bonuses of your executive board to DNI outcomes in your hiring and in your onboarding. And if you don't meet them, they don't get their bonus. She goes, and just watch how an organisation changes. So don't make it the responsibility of one worker who has to, you know, organise, you know, Chinese New Year. You, you make sure that this year we hire from 30 different communities or that we, you know, we promote, you know, 30% of our staff. And, and if we don't, no bonus for me. 
Yeah, and that's so sensible, isn't it? To to fight systemic racism by actually looking at the system. <laughs> um, you know, how, how revolutionary, right? Who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought the problem is in this room? And looking around the room, and that's what you need to change. And uh, I, I was on a board for a number of years with an organisation here, a state government board. And I remember the chair of the board. It was such a progressive, wonderful man, a feminist, honestly, a feminist in the truest sense of the word. And he would say to me, as we looked around the room, he'd say, the problem, you know, one of the problems that we have, um, Tasneem, is that when I look around this board, I don't see all of Victoria, which is the state that I'm from, um, because all of Victoria does not look like this board. Most of Victoria looks like, half of, part of Victoria does, but a lot of it looks like you and so much of who were not on this board and we need to change that you know and so this commitment to understanding and acknowledging that you can be part of the problem if you don't make room and make way for that diverse representation is it you know it, it takes a really progressive leader or a progressive voice to be able to do that because it takes one good leader or example or role model to set the standard you know whether it was Nelson Mandela whether it was I think it was at one stage in South Africa, not this president, the one prior to it. For example, I remember him uh, on front page, on putting himself on the front line by agreeing to take an AIDS test for that country. And he, you know, he's, I'm going to put his hand up, had the test, you know, printed his result, which was negative, but he did it. And it suddenly it just paved the way to destigmatize something. And if the president can do it, you know, my husband can do it, my son can do it, my, my brother can do it, whatever. And it created, it was the process of destigmatizing. And so, and it's sad that this is what it takes, but it takes sometimes a good white man <laughs> to step forward and say, we need to, we need to diverse, we need to change the way that we hire. We need to change the way we recruit. We need to market more effectively. We need to engage with communities that don't look like us because we're missing the mark. And the best way of engaging with them is to hire them because they know what they're doing and we don't, we're missing the mark. We're missing this entire cohort um, in, the, in the way that we program our apps and the way that we, the, our analytics are read about, about who's using our organisation, who's not. Everything is premised and programmed on the logistics and algorithms of middle white communities and that's not who our audiences are. And the only way you're going to change that is if you change the people at those positions. And the only way you're going to change those positions is if you change the way you recruit. And the only way you're going to change the way you recruit is if you hire recruiters uh, who are from diverse communities as well or diversely representative. But the only way you're going to think that way is if the decision makers at the top are also diverse. So it, it really is a systemic thing. But when you start diversifying from the top down, you know, I mean, the, the rest just falls into place. But when it's constantly bottom up, it's, it's a constant battle and you're sort of like, yeah, we have diverse media and we do social media and that's really great and, and people are coming but there's... You talk about satisfaction for your employees and there's a constant glass ceiling. They just can't get past. They can't get past second base. They cannot get past second base because it's it's literally the stronghold of, you know, it's like a white bastion that people do not want to give up because I don't know if it's a part of a colonial legacy or what it is. That's probably another podcast. But it's, it's, it's a very precious territory that people aren't willing to rescind and that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you morally and it's going to cost you financially. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like deliberately containing the issue. The way you're describing it, it's almost like I'm thinking 
anew. It's almost like a penny's drop by, by creating that diversity and inclusion group with that officer and those things to talk about. You're putting it in a box. And you're saying, well, that's over there and we're dealing with it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's almost segregating it. That's almost sidelining it. Well, it is. It, it could be, mm-hmm. as you say, unless you actually go right to the top where the decisions are made and say, right, who's in this room? Um, and are, have we got a serious case of groupthink here? Which is, uh, which is uh, as I say, coming back to always, always my, my, my biggest fear, I think. Um, because we don't know... You, the old Donald Rumfeld thing, isn't it? We don't know what we don't know. I mean, it's it's the unknown unknowns. And the smartest people I've ever met are the ones that say, oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. Um. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I'm Yeah. yeah. You, you, and you can't presume to know. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pontificate on what the experiences are of the African communities or the, you know, the Taiwanese or the Japanese or the Korean or the Malaysian. I mean, why should I? How could I? I mean, you need to speak to those people. You need to speak to those communities. And there's no shortage of talent. Mm. There is no mm-hmm. shortage of talent from diverse communities at all. I mean, all you have to do, I'm sure UK is the same as Australia, Look at the final year of school. Is it your A-levels or O-levels? I'm not sure which is in you. A-levels is the final year. Who's, who's, getting, who's getting all the top awards at every speech night of all the you know, best schools there? Even the not best schools. I mean, the point is you have got these second, third generation British children of migrants or grandchildren of migrants who are top of the charts, getting you know, such great results, going on to amazing careers, going on to amazing, you know, great positions. Um, but their representation, whether they're from you know, African communities, whether they're Jamaican, whether they're you know, Pakistani, or whether they're you know, Egyptian or whatever it is, you're not really seeing that second, third, fourth generational representation as much as you should be. It's not proportional. Mm-hmm. So if they make up 30 40 50%, there's still only 10 or 15%. And that has a trickle-down impact. And again, it's that aspirational thing. You know, people don't see them. I mean, Barack Obama was was you know, a break in the weather. Sadiq Khan is a break in the weather. You know, so these are great, but they're too few and far between. And it shouldn't just be like a, a phenomenon that happens once every 10 years. It should be the way things run. So in an ideal way, the DNI metrics are embedded in the way that an org- in the way that we live. I would I would love to see the end of DNI committees because. It's not a thing because this is what we do. We like New York. We all have to just want to be in New York. New York is just like it's all happening there. It's, you know, whether you're black or purple or brown or green, you can aspire to anything, you can get to anything and you can be anything, you know, within reason, without there being those racial barriers, without there being that structural that structural injustice. Obviously it still happens. I mean, Black Lives Matter is, is, a, is a reality. So I shouldn't minimise that. But I think the model of its effectiveness and its efficiency and the way that it operates as a globalised city is an example of how much better we can be. Mm. I sometimes think that of London. Lon- oh, my God, London amazing. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, it's a city very dear to my heart because I've worked in it all my life. But it is uh, it is an amazing multicultural city and that's why I love it so much. Um, but that isn't to say there's not problems, but everyone rubs along together and and that's, that's what I that's what I love about it I think it just could be better and you know in order for it to be better not just at a at a superficial level but at a meaningful substantive level that's where the investment has to happen and the tough decisions need to be made and people have to share their platform Mm -hmm. people aren't going to give up a platform because it's 
it's been in the family for 50 years or, you know, it's, it's my dad's best friend's son's grandson. Or, you know, if that kind of nepotism and cronyism is, is the way that we continue to operate, we're really not going to see the change we need to see. It's just, it's, it's just not going to happen. So we need standards. We need Maybe we need policies in the way that we hire and recruit. Um, but there are examples where organisations have done it right. The big corporations, um, some of the big banks, where they, they live and they walk their diversity talk and they're the ones that are doing really well. And they ensure, and like, you know, the, the idea that you can't stay on a board more than five or six or seven, eight years, for example, you must rotate it, means that new thinking is coming. You, you mitigate against groupthink. But we need to go beyond that. We need to make sure that there are quotas or there are targets within those boards and those decision-making positions such that you mandate diversity, diversity is represented. I think that's a really good way of ensuring that that diverse thinking trickles down. Mm. Otherwise, it just... It isn't going to be a whole whole of system change. It's only going to be patchwork. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, a lot of tough conversations um, and, and challenging privilege and comfort, absolutely. Um, but, you know, you've got to think, I think, you know, keeping your eyes on the prize here, which is a more inclusive, harmonious, equitable equitable world to live in is the goal. Are, are you are you becoming more optimistic? I mean, since Black Lives Matters, I don't know whether that's had an impact on on the way you're thinking about these issues. Are, are you more optimistic now? I'm more determined. <laughs> I'm more determined. And I'm I'm really embracing the shift from faffing about the topic of, you know, be diverse and inclusive to being anti-racist. I think that's a really strident change from what it was and I think it's an important one to have because, you know, pussyfooting around has not got us anywhere. It's got us, you know, it's got us to a few DNI conferences and forums where we all sit there and talk about gender targets, which is great, but, I mean, we're so past that. We're so past gender targets now. We're really about embedding cultural change, inclusion and, and not being racist in the way that we hire and the way we think and so much of that is a re- reaction to our political climate. You, you can't deny that. So with anti-racism training comes anti-racism education and understanding the perspective that you have been fed and countering that with actual content, with that with actual context and 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 you know perspective from those communities. So I mean if you're only source of if you're only source of people from different cultures and communities and belief system is Fox News or what's her name? Katie, that woman that you have in the UK. That one, Hawkins Doc, whatever her name is. Um yeah, you, you're going to have Hopkins, Hopkins, you are going to have a somewhat compromised view of reality. You are. So having that tough conversation by engaging and sitting in a room and hearing from an actual, um, you know, British Nigerian or a British Pakistani or a British Indian or a British Muslim, you know, it can, can be a life changer or a game changer. And you know, here, again, the sessions that I've done and the conversations that I've had often where you're dealing with a room full of cohort, I'll probably just end on this, this whether I've spoken in schools or, or I've spoken in, in forums with real adults, you know, and I'll sometimes do a tally and say, you know, how many of you here have heard about Islam, their hands go up? How many of you have heard about Muslims, their hands go up? How many of you are a little bit weary about Muslims based on what you've read on the news? And many hands will go up. So you know where the connection is. But then you top it off and say, how many of you in here have met a Muslim? And no hands will go up. So it's not rocket science. Mm. It is about engagement. It is about interaction. And apparently there was some university study last night in the UK that someone shared on Facebook that revealed, surprisingly, 
people who actually know minority communities um, tend not to have negative views about them. Yeah. How, how much was that person paid to do that research? <laughs> because I'll put my hand up and do that research for half the price. But, I mean, it's not rocket science. You you are fearful about what you don't know about. I mean, that's Politics 101, right? That's fear and divide. And I think there's something to be said for actually getting people to confront the enemy or confront confront the enemy in their mind based on what they've been fed and breaking it down. So a lot of the work that I do apart from the DNI stuff is is working in media engagement and countering media bias um, because it's a beast. It's an absolute beast. And media and politics together, I mean, has a lot to answer for. What I love about, and I've seen some of your appearances, I know you speak, you you appear regularly on a talk show in, in, in Australia, that's right. I love those appearances because, and I don't know if this is right, but it, it seems to me that what I loved about that was that you weren't invited to be the token Muslim woman. It seems like, you know, you were available, there's something to talk about, you're articulate and intelligent, and we're going to ask your view. I, I don't know if that's true. And that's a shift. And that's a shift and that's progress. I mean, for want of a better word, and I noticed that more than anything because I think when I began my media appearances like 20 years ago, I was responding to, you know, a terrorist attack in you know Indonesia or UK or America or whatever. And so I was talking about the community's reaction to that, how the community's feeling about Islamophobia, about you know, the negative experiences of women wearing hijab and all that. So I did all that stuff. But then once, that was also when I was doing the Islamic training. But as I was shifting to the minority experience, generally, and I began the cross-cultural border engagement, you know, I would then talk about I would co-op border issues and working in the media space. I mean, that became a whole area of research in, in and of itself. And so then that would inform my opinion. And then, yeah, so then I guess in a professional sense, I've, I've, I don't just work with Muslim communities. I work with state government entities. I work in arts. I work in media. I work in academia. I do a whole lot of different things. And so to be given a platform where I can respond to issues beyond the realm of my headscarf, which is many <laughs> more things other than that, um, yeah, I, it's, it's such a relief. It's such a relief. And I, I, I'm, I'm not all media will do that. I mean, there are still certain media outlets that will only contact you for the Muslim response to something. So, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there, so I'm slightly optimistic. Good, good. In the in the short time that we have left, if you do have time, I'd love to ask you those quick fire questions. What would most surprise people about Tasneem Chopra? Oh, I actually love motorbikes. <laughs> so I've done my research. Tell us about Harley Davidsons. Am I right? <laughs> yes. Dang, you're good. They just I just think they're the most stunning pieces of machinery. You know, I just, the way that they're crafted and I, I just love the loud roar of, of them when they're revving up. I just think it's a beautiful sound. Having said that, I'm an absolute like noise Nazi and I can't stand noises and I can't stand loud music and I can't stand loud neighbours. I just I have a low threshold. Somehow with the Harley, I just, it just, I make all the exceptions. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about the Harley. This, maybe it's like that. Maybe I'm secretly like a real bad boy. I, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't worked it out, but it's, yeah, something I don't advertise a lot. Haven't, I, mean, I mentioned it in a TED Talk. Didn't think anyone was going to remember it, but, yeah, I was amazed by that. What one book, journal or website, it really doesn't matter, should all communicators read? A lot of the reading that I do is all based on experiences of marginalisation and what it has meant to, to grow up 
Asian in Australia or African in Australia or a migrant in Australia. And sometimes when those stories are told in an anecdotal way, I think storytelling is such a powerful arc of shifting people's perceptions because it's it's not just dry theory. It's actually informed by lived experience. So I think if that can shift a person's view, it's an enormous achievement. There's a book called The Hate Race written by an Australian writer called Maxine Benamer-Clark. So Maxine's parents originally from the UK, but Jamaican background, but she grew up in Australia. And her experiences of growing up as black in Australia during the 80s and 90s, and the way that she conveys it and the kind of hostility that she encountered in the playground from teachers, um, and colleagues, etc. It, it really goes, and the way she tells, she's an incredible writer. So because she's t- telling a story, you, you connect with it, and it's very emotional and it's very funny. And, and I think if any writer can make you laugh and cry at the same time, it stays with you and it really it can have an visceral effect on the way that you see yourself sometimes. I mean, I, I love to read, read books that I can see myself reflected in my experiences of discrimination or diversity or marginalisation. They just sing to me because I get it. It's, it's my story more than Shakespeare ever will be, sorry. So I read Maxine's writing and I was really moved by it. And I tell people, if you want to read about what experiences are for diverse people in the West, amazing. Thank you. We will put a link to it in the the show notes. What do you wish you'd known when you'd first started out in your career? Oh, wow. I wish I had known that it's not necessary to shrink myself to make other people feel better about themselves and not, yeah, not diminish my star quality or my vibrancy or my opinion because I felt it was too much. To be told, you know, by oh, that's it. you might want to tone it down. I was like, well, why don't you turn it down? So now I'm now I'm sort of sassy about giving it back, but in the beginning, I was like, okay, I'll just say the bare minimum. I'll just do the I'll just be, I'll just be a good little brown girl and stay in my corner. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I had been a little bit more of a professional disruptor from an earlier age. And now, when I see younger women doing it, it's just like I like to think I kind of paved the way for that. I don't know if I did, but I just hope that. When I see them smashing it and owning it and speaking back to the establishment or system that tries to corral them to, into being a well-behaved migrant, when, they, when they've clearly had experiences of frustration or racism or discrimination or hardship because of the state or the person or the entity and be able to articulate it and say it, and they're in their 20s, I'm like, damn, that's amazing. And then our people are stuck. I mean, everyone from Greta Thunberg to Malala Yousafzai, these are women who didn't shrink themselves and look at the impact they've had. Also the the witty, clever one-liner. I don't know if you feel comfortable telling your story of standing at a crossroads in New York not that long after 9-11. Melbourne, yeah. In Mel- oh, was it? In Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, so it was, um, yeah, so it was a few years after 9-11 actually. So it would have been maybe a few years, in, yeah, um, somewhat the early 2000s. So I was standing at a crossroad with a friend crossing and at the at the traffic light, which was red, car pulled up or before it went ready car pulled up and slowed down and the young guy driving it opened his window and he yelled out to me um because I had a head covering on um and he yelled out to me where's your bomb baby oh yeah he yelled it yeah where's your bomb baby and I was so shocked because I realized he was looking at me and my friend just ignored him pretended she didn't hear or see anything and I I was just like I was transfixed but then I responded in a minute because I'm a middle child and that's what we do 
And I looked at him and I had a handbag over my shoulder and I pointed to the bag and I, and I gestured to him in a shh position that was, and I actually mouthed the words in the bag. Like, and the poor guy, like, literally thought I had a bomb in my bag. And the blood drained from his, his, his silly white face and he just oh, passed the light, which I don't think was actually even read at that point. So, yeah, so, yeah, bully, bully to him and bullies to me. So it was, it was a very cathartic moment to be able to just shut him up. Um, but, yeah, it, it was also quite shocking at the time to actually have someone say that. And in broad daylight on a big shopping street um, in downtown, downtown Melbourne. So the, the comfort and the gumption of people who have such privilege to be able to question others and to make such horrid assumptions and stereotypes simply based on what they believe is fact because, hey, they watched Fox News that night or something, um, is, is a constant bane of mine. Very finally, I'm going to give you a billboard. It's a kind of metaphorical billboard, blank billboard, but millions of people are going to see this billboard and you can write a message on it, any message you like. What message would you put on that billboard? I don't know whether I should go for the beauty queen phrase or the, or the angry feminist phrase. Um, it's two options, really. Oh, You can share both. I'll, I'll go with the angry feminist one, which is no one's looking out for you more than you. I like it a lot. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, that's part of, you know, the journey of, you know, womanhood and, you know, and the rest of it and, and, get, and getting to where you are over the hurdles, over the obstacles. You think sometimes that you know who your allies are or who's in your corner, but often they're not. But you have to put on your big girl pants and keep going and realise that no one's looking out for you more than you. It's a empowering message. I cannot thank you enough for your time. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed every moment of it. I've learned a lot. Tasmin, this thank you. Thank you so much. This was actually lots of fun, Katie. I really appreciate the research you've done. It's so impressive. Thank you so much again. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. To find out more about the books and the many other resources that Tasneem and I talked about, including that link to her presentation at this year's IABC World Conference, head over to the show notes. You'll find them on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. The podcast section there will take you through to the show notes for this episode, plus all the past episodes that we've done so far. While you're on the site, you might like to sign up for our monthly internal comms newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a shout out. You can find us on social media. Um, You might even like to blog about the show. And to help us become more discoverable for other IC pros out there that you think might find this show helpful, I'm told the best way to do this is to simply rate the show on iTunes. If you can do that, I'd be really grateful. Now, we have some great guests coming up for you, including my funniest guest, by far, the wonderful Steve Presenzo. I can't wait to bring you that. So hit the subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms Podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, 
It's what's inside that counts.